beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. I am very excited to introduce Michael to you. I know Michael through Douglas from the Old Timer episode. That was about two or three episodes ago. Michael lives in America, but is a frequent visitor to our shores, and it is always a pleasure to see him here. I am very happy that he agreed to talk to us at Meet Me in the Field. I find the part of his story that I know incredibly inspiring, and I trust that you will too. And I'm also excited to hear part of the journey that I don't know. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Sit back and enjoy. Michael, good afternoon. Welcome to Meet Me in the Field. Well, good afternoon to you too. Thank you very much for coming through and come and talk to us. I'm very surprised and very fortunate to have you in the green chair. You are on holiday in South Africa. I am indeed, yes. And you're a regular South Africa visitor. I am too. Okay. Yeah. And you are from America. Yes, I am from America. A, Bo- <laughs> a real live American. Born and bred. Born and bred. <laughs> okay. Where, where in America are you from? Well, I was born in a suburb of Boston in New England. I spent the first 16 years of my life there. But I've lived all over America, from Hawaii to California, San Francisco, Los Angeles. I currently have a place in Miami, and I also live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So you're from Miami, Florida? Um, I think of myself as a Floridian, I do. Yeah. I said to my husband this morning, kind of, where is Florida? He said, well, there's one in Miami, and I don't know where there's another one. So I thought, I don't think you're from Miami. <laughs> so you're from Miami. Cool. Yeah, well, the, the Florida is a state, and in that state is Miami, yeah. almost at the bottom of the state, in the southernmost okay. part. Surfer paradise. You know, it was, um, as I was growing up, it certainly was, and uh, then it became very densely populated, and it became a tourist attraction for people from all over the world, and it's changed the culture. So things are less than paradise okay. there now. I know. Yeah. I still have this ideal surface paradise type of thing in my head for Miami, Florida. Yeah. There are moments that are still available <laughs> there. Okay. Um, and maybe it has more to do with my aging process than it does Miami. <laughs> I'm not certain. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up in America and did you grow up religious, spiritually? Neither of my parents uh, forced any kind of religious anything on me. Um, I was brought up um, in a Jewish tradition, and I was um, required to go to Hebrew school from the time I was eight years old. And the deal was that as soon as I reached my 13th birthday and had my bar mitzvah, I could do whatever I wanted. So I spent five years learning Hebrew. Uh, and some of the things that uh, came along with the Bible. Uh, And so that was sort of my background on all of it. Okay. And what happened when you you had your bar mitzvah? Um, Well, right after my bar mitzvah, I was free. 
So, yes, that, that was so awesome. there was, so there was no what, there, what happened directly after right. that. So there was no um, going to Hebrew school. I wasn't really interested in any of that. Okay. And I don't think I've been... Uh, I went back to uh, a temple uh, probably for 25 or 30 years. Okay. Yeah. So what you learned that didn't really resonate with you? Well, I can remember there was one one moment that was the turning point for me. Um, and um, and I, I raised my hand. I couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 years old. And I asked the Hebrew school teacher, how do you know there is a God? And <laughs> Wrong question. Because it, because, it, because it was all, to me, it was all some kind of mythology. I was thinking privately in my own head, you know, you know this is all one more fairy tale. Yeah. And I said, so how do you know that? And he said, well, you know when, um, um, when a leaf moves around on a branch? And I said, yes. And, and then he said, well, do you understand that it's wind that's doing that? And I said, well, yes, because I can feel the wind. And he said, well, that's like God is that you can see what God does, but you may not be able to see God. And I immediately turned me off completely. From <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I thought doesn't it, make sense. it made no sense to this nine-year-old. It still doesn't, quite frankly. That's, so, yeah. That's interesting because it was wind that introduced me to my higher power. Wind, wind became a higher power. <laughs> uh, wow. So, <laughs> so for some people it resonates and others not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what do you believe in today? I have sort of a, a broad understanding of of what's going on. And I would say a good half of it is that I really don't understand. But from from my current place in time and space, when I think of personal spirituality, it has to do with a reconnection with my own personal belief and value system. Okay. And when and, and part of this was initiated in the early years of my recovery from uh, alcohol and drug addiction was that I had a sponsor who once said to me that I you would always know you were acting in God's will when your responses were all in harmony with the world and that stayed with me. That was a very important platform that I jumped off of from that point on. And when I when I speak about and think about my own personal spirituality, which has very little to do with my traditional religious upbringing, I conceptualize that still. Now, I'm very interested in uh, things like astrobiology and, and these are sort of nerdy kind of things that I'm, <laughs> I've gotten into in my older age. but And I have always, since I was a child, wanted to know what was the nothing before the something that okay. we caused. So I was asking those questions at a very young age. And now I'm getting some of those questions answered in my older adult life. And it's still very difficult for me to take it beyond the pragmatic kind of explanations that I hear about the universe. 
Okay. Since I believe that I am, and this is part of my spirituality, I believe that I'm actually a conscious part of the universe, yes. that I exist within a much larger um, world or universe, and that I'm a tiny little piece of the universe's consciousness to be giving the universe feedback to my continuous opening an understanding of what's going on to help the universe know what is going okay. on. So that somewhere in there is where I sort of retreat to when I think about that. Okay. I don't know why, but something that came up for me now was black matter. <laughs> okay. Have, have you gone there yet? The debate on whether oh, black abso- matter... <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, I could go on with the science part of that forever because there's no doubt now that all of that exists. I found that the, so fascinating. The, the thing that I find fascinating about black matter is who, who thought at some stage that it's something? <laughs> I, just, I just assumed always, well, I never thought about it, but for me it was just nothing. And then one day I heard that some, there's now a debate that it's something. Who right. thought about this? And thank God for the world, for people to actually think about that stuff. Right. Because I don't. It just never comes you know, up for me at all. And when I hear you say that, it, it reminds me about how much... I mean, they say that um, the this dark energy and dark matter combined occupy about 78% of everything around us. We don't. I don't know it's there. I mean, I've been told it's there, <laughs> but I don't know it's there. I can't see it. I can't feel it. I can't yeah. relate to it in any given way. So that's where I can sort of opt out of trying to understand that piece of it until I get that yeah. and instead capitalize on what is available to me in the here and now. Yeah. And when I, for instance, I'm on vacation here in South Africa, I'm very fortunate to be right on the rocks overlooking um, False Bay. Mm. And I am transfixed on, I mean, I'll go for 30, 40 minutes at a time just staring out the window at the ocean, oh, just no. watching the waves moving and being totally connected to the universe as it is in that moment yeah. as I perceive it which brings me to a peacefulness that is the very definition of what my sponsor told me was being in harmony in the universe. So when I talk about spirituality, it is those moments when I'm most connected with the universe as, it pre- as it's presenting to me through my very... Um, sort of minimal version of what I see, what I hear, given the other 76%, (laughs) (laughs) that um, I become that part of it. And I sort of go into a, um, a, I cross that bridge between being in my head and being completely connected with something outside of myself. And, um, and when we talk about a power greater than ourselves, I can say that when I'm connected to that moment and, and here, which is one of the reasons I come here, is because it happens here so regularly okay. while I'm here um, yeah. that, um, 
that is really the focus of my understanding and and the sort of the the um earth and the fire of okay. what what really and and it not only is something that i enjoy and love when it's happening but i make i see that i make plans in my life to be connected to it ah. as often as i possibly can Lovely, yeah. yeah even more so than with people okay yeah. are you now retired of semi semi yeah because you you turned academic in your well, in your late later phase of your life yeah sure no um somewhere in uh uh let's see i think it was about uh 1998 i was practicing as a master's level psychologist and i got a uh, i picked up a something on, on a nurse's desk and it was a call for a um faculty at the um at the Hazelton Foundation And anyway, to make a long story short, I followed through on it and started there in my academic career uh, as an associate professor because I had done some teaching at the university before and um, I fell in love with being there and the whole life of an academic and got I'm super involved in things like um, helping to create the graduate school curriculum and then doing Whoa. lots of research on what works and what doesn't work with students and how they learn and and that kind of thing and eventually became a full professor and then dean of the school it all happened very quickly for me <laughs> nothing ever happened slowly in my life so, so that all that all happened you want to be impatient yeah. there you go boom <laughs> you want to say impatience is a problem for you let this this for you <laughs> so uh, yeah so i had an academic i have an academic background and and i rely on it as a way of understanding the world around me it's a reference for me um it's my has been a reference for me uh science that is because that's what my academic program is all about yeah. uh to understand what's going on around me and what's happening around me so yeah one of one of the things that happened while i was doing that while well, that i was feeling like i was missing something even though i was doing all of that and i was pretty much successful in what i was doing was that i missed the interaction with patients okay it was my first love uh because there is also a higher power present when i'm working as a psychologist when i connect with another human being in such a way that i can influence them to find a way to deal with their pain differently. Yeah. And it's a wonderful moment mm. in my those those are the when I go back to my my first uh, sponsor those that is sort of harmony times 3 when okay. you know when that happens and I know that it is a very special moment in time and place. So I tr- and when I say I'm almost retired or semi-retired. It's because there's a part of me that doesn't let go of that even though if I only do it two months out of the year now, which okay. is about what it's coming down okay. to. Okay. Yeah. So, did I understand correctly that you went back to or you still see private clients? Yes, I actually have gone from the sort of upmarket client with an adjustment issue to people who have organic brain disorders 
and those that have concurrent dependency issues. And because what I find is that from the perception of psychotherapy that these are the least handled people with with patience and understanding and compassion and they're they're the most needy of all to make another connection with another human being and then once made to begin to access ways and means of experiencing life differently. And I found that out late in my career. And as soon as I did, it became my niche in the hospital program that I work in. So that's, that's basically that. And of course, working with older clients, which we call geriatric clients in my world, um, because it helps me so much <laughs> to accept my own. <laughs> You're actually busy doing your personal research. <laughs> Why not? Here I am. I killed two birds with one stone. <laughs> Fabulous. At what stage in your life did you realize that this is the path you want to follow? When I was a kid, I was the one who um, people would come to to talk about their problems to. I yeah. knew that right away. I okay. mean, I didn't understand that that might have been a special gift. I had no idea what it was. All I knew is that's what was going on. Mm. I had an interest not just an ability, but an interest in listening to other people's issues. So I knew that right away. Um, when I first started college in the early years, while I was still using all sorts of chemicals, I was in a, um, a program called a special education for gifted and um, being taught to be a teacher in gifted programs. Okay. And, uh, and what I found was that I really did enjoy it, but I was far too into drugs to really get get past that. I had no idea that there was even a specialty in something in mental health that I would have been interested in even more okay. than that. So that came much later. And I think um, some of the things that helped me realize that were things like LSD and marijuana <laughs> <laughs> and all those things that happen when you're doing that that are positive, which open up places in my heart, and then, by the way, I'm not saying people should run out and start using LSD <laughs> or marijuana. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm saying what happened for me was that at that mm. time in the 60s that I was doing that. And when I was doing that, it really opened up a different segment of my mind uh, before it became a calamity okay. is, what, is what happened. And so I pulled that forward when I made the decision to live a drug-free life. Uh, and when, during the course of becoming drug-free, I discovered the world of psychotherapy, and, and it all sort of came home to roost for me okay. at that point. Puzzle pieces fell into place. Once you were cleaned, <laughs> you could actually organize I, them the way they were supposed to organize and I And then I was doing it, and I had this another woman in my life. The women in my life have been turning points for me. Almost all the, my turning points happened around a woman. And um, I'm gay. Mother Earth? <laughs> Something like that. So the end of that story was that um, she said to me, you will, with your intellect, she said, and, and which startled me in a good way, but I was disbelieving in another sense. 
was that you will never, she said to me, you will never be satisfied doing this unless you go all the way with your education. And I'll never forget it because that was the motivation I had to finish one program, go to the next one, go to the next one. And I didn't stop until I got, you know, the final phase of my, you know, and it was this woman who gave, yeah. And the one who started me in school, which I wasn't even thinking of doing, I was busy doing some other things, said, you know, Michael, you're smart, you should go back to school. Little things, those were turning points in my life, those little off the chart thing. And it like, it hit me like an electric buzzer both times. And I did it. Here I am. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And you worked extensively in the in the addiction field at some stage. Mm-hmm. I started there because that's where I was when I started. Yeah. And my whole life was all about addiction. And what I understood was that as I went through was that there were a lot of people with addiction who didn't just have addiction. And so my um, focus then became on mental health. And then I went from, you know, I sort of divorced my lover of addiction and went on to my next lover, which was <laughs> mental health, because it was so much more of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was so many other things to yeah. do with it. So um, what I did was finally decided to be um, uh, a special, I'd take a specialty in both issues. And most often when I uh, would see people later on in my life, I would say a good 50-60% of the time, they either had one or the other or both. And so my education served me really well in that way. So the classic coexisting or the coexisting condition. Yeah, yeah. That's basically what I see. Diagnosis. And I rarely see the people with, um, for instance, with just schizophrenia. I almost always, I would say 80% of the time when I'm seeing a person with schizophrenia, I'm also seeing addiction. Okay. And so we're, we're doing that simultaneously. Okay. Yeah. Now, during your asset marijuana days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you didn't meet God? <laughs> well, I thought I did. <laughs> it was a false God. <laughs> and, and it was uh, LSD. And it was, um, I'll never forget it. It was very, it was in the old Osley. As a matter of fact, Osley was actually distributing his own liquid acid in Greenwich Village when I was living there in 1961. <laughs> and it came in a little um, vial and it was a clear white liquid. I think I had a couple of them. And I saw, I looked out and I saw all of what was around me sort of falling on the wayside. And what was left was the image of God. And I will tell you that I believe that that was true. Now, as a scientist now, when I look back <laughs> on it... <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I actually understand what the interaction of the lysergic acid was on the parts of my brain that allowed that vision to happen and give me the meaning yes. that I got from it. So it's, you know, it's, it's that. It's, I, I have this, um, I don't, not sure it's a, it's not really a conflict, but it's an ongoing experience where I, understand at some level that there is something 
weigh something on going more than I can possibly conceptualize. But yet, in order to find comfort in the here and now, I lean on my scientific background to understand it. So I don't exclude any possibility. What I do, I'm a pra pragmatic guy. I, I deal with what's in front of me and understand what's in front of me. I have never found labels for any of it. Not okay. really. I don't. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean I'm not there. It just means that 76% of it, you know, it's, yeah. and I know it's there. I got that it's there. Yeah. We're pretty cool about knowing that it's there. <laughs> but from, um, from a scientific point of view, I can't, I can measure the 76. So I know it's there. Yeah. That's easy. But most of the, um, my cohorts in my, in my field believe that it's much more likely that we're really living in a digital composition of this thing that's being, and then again, even that would be being something who was, who was doing that digital composition. Yeah. In other words, we live in a program. So I know. So and you know and and there's, <laughs> and what's interesting about that is that there is actually more measurable evidence to support that than there is in a deity within the context of the current understanding of religion in yeah. general. So it's fascinating, and mm. I don't say no to any of it. Yeah, and I do say yes to most of it. Cool. So. So we, no, no, you tell me. <laughs> what <are> you? <laughs> well, I, see, I see open mindedness, <laughs> which is never a bad thing the, the, the way I look at life. But so, what I'm hearing is that, okay, let, let me figure this out in my own head. Take your time. <laughs> it takes a lot of my time. It might as well take some of your time. <laughs> I have this spot when I sit on my counseling chair that I focus on there. When my, uh, my clients think I disappear, <laughs> just give me a second. I'm no, gonna, I understand. I, I, need, I need to figure this out first. Now I kind of, Carry on. Uh, and then once I've got it figured out, I put it in words. is a more yeah. difficult thing to, for, from what I think I understand. So what I think I understand from you is that the picture that I have in my head is that a lot of academically qualified people can, can use science against a sense of spirit, if I can call it that way. But you incorporating it. Well, I think that there is a potential grandiosity ah. of dismissing the unknown. Cool, yeah. Because by virtue of it being unknown, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I'm talking science, I'm talking measurable observable. And science also includes the unknown. Yeah. But because the details of that is unknown by science or anybody else for that reason at that point, there really is nothing more to say about it. Yeah. And, you know, there is a, something that comes out of the, um, the, the recovery literature that, um, that I love so much because it's so true. And it's more will be revealed.
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever is coming, it's coming. We'll yeah. see what. But me, us knowing or not knowing about it is not going to change it to start with. <laughs> but the issue is that whatever comes out of the future uh, is no different for me than whatever happened in the past. It's not, none of that is in the present for me. Okay. And so I deal with what I've got now. And I like to think, like you said, that I'm open-minded and willing to take in things that that become real for me. Right now, what's real for me and, and from science is that if you look at a scale on evidence versus non-evidence, what you get is a lot of evidence yeah. that there's nothing at this point. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something that's going to flip that all out yeah. when one day we get to know about it. Did your studies in any way influence your recovery negatively? Uh, no, so not at all. So those stages took back and said, kind of, these are conflicting in, in a way. I'm, I'm, going to I'm going to want to explain that to you because um, it's, sometimes in my mind, I disallow myself my personal truth in a, in a recovery setting because there's a part of me that wants to be accepted and will know that there are at least a, a portion of the people around me that will reject that out of hand. Yeah. And then there are other times when I'm feeling confident and comfortable and I'm not doing that in my head and I can just say it like it is. And what I'm seeing is that as I get older and, um, you know, there's much less time that I'm going to be spending on the planet than I had when I first came into the recovery process, that being able to speak my truth without any anticipation of rejection or even acceptance yeah. has become a, a way of my looking at it and experiencing it. Okay. So I do. You know, and I'm not out there pounding the, the uh, sidewalk for anybody to believe what I believe. As a matter of fact, it was the essence of the pull into recovery where, as you understand it... Um, that saved my life. <laughs> I'm with you. So, you know, I got permission. Yeah. Absolutely. We all get permission. Yes. Do it your way. Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've been doing it as I'm experiencing it, what I find out about it, what works and what seemingly works and what seemingly doesn't work. And I use the word seemingly because more will be revealed. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> now, you were, not recently, but not too long ago, diagnosed with cancer. That's true. Was, is that a spiritual speed bump? Well, exactly the opposite, actually. Okay. Um, after the fear, the period of fear, uh, and the did you uh, go through the five phases of Kubler Kubler Ross? Uh, <laughs> could, could you tick them off? <laughs> I'm through one, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, actually, the the shock of of the diagnosis for anybody listening to this would understand. That's why I bring it up because I think the, the, this yeah. is the stuff that that I want to know. Spun out. Gone. Did only heard the first sentence. You have leukemia. 
and, and the rest of it, I, I, I didn't even hear any, any of the rest of it. So what happened after that was I spent about five days alone at home because I'm the kind of guy that when I'm sick or injured or whatever, I sort of retreat into my cave, lick my wounds until I'm better and then come back out to the, like you know, a, I don't, I don't make it a public yeah, event. Like a hood animal. You, you're just exactly. Gonna, okay. That's the metaphor I, I think about when I think about it. And while um, I was in the cave, um, I was bouncing around from place to place, um, rolling with the intensity of the emotion. That was my my first place where yeah. Kubler would put that one in, and I was I was doing that and going back and forth and you know the ups and downs and the steep hills up and then the hope and then the it's up. going to be okay. Oh my God, I'm going to die. It's going to be okay. That. <laughs> and it took about five and a half days before that phase of it was complete. Uh, and, and then um, I do what I normally do is I look at it as something that I need to walk through and I need to find out how to do it. Okay. Because I had no experience with it other than being there for other people who are going through it. Mm. So um, the next uh, was about four months worth of trying to figure it all out. And then there were all sorts of details that come along with medicine and all. And I had to figure all that out, too. And then there was finances and I had to deal with that, too. And when all of those things were in place at that point... Um, and I got the right physician. I went through several before I got the one that meted my needs for communication, which was number one, and not only expertise, but communication. And um, I was able to sit back and say, oh, my God, what the guy was trying to tell me at that first session with him when he told me I had cancer was I was one of the lucky ones. If um, the chemo that they usually give you works for me, I'm likely to die of something else. Okay. So, and, but it took me a long time before I was even ready to hear it because oh. of the intensity of the response I had yeah. to the big C. I mean, we've all heard that our entire lives. Cancer, Absolutely. oh my God, the worst thing that's in the... In, and in my opinion... I've got a pain, I've got cancer. It doesn't matter where the pain is. Right. My head is always telling me I've got cancer. Well, so, the, so, and so the end of that story was that... So, um, you know, I think of it in terms of keeping up with what I need to do in order to maintain this issue that I'm going to die of something else. Yeah. So I'm very, you know, it's one of my sort of my chores that I do every day. It's like, you know, washing my face is taking care of that and making sure that I have the right medicine on that day and whatever it is. And where I am right now, uh, and the question was, how does my spirituality, how has my spirituality been influenced yes. by this? The end of that is that now that I have myself back again, one of the things that I realize is that um, I don't want to waste any time that I have left, period. And that means dropping a lot of, the, um, of my boundaries that I had put together during my working intensity and my schooling and my whatever it is. And so I find myself reconstructing boundaries rapidly uh, to suit this 
sort of um, change of time left on the planet to make sure that it's all worthwhile now, that I'm doing something that keeps me in that harmony okay. that I talked about. Yeah. And much of that has to do with being around people that I love, around places that I love, doing things that I love, and loving all of it oh. as best as I possibly can. And, um, and you know what? That's exactly what's going on around me. You know, now that I've made that shift yeah. into that mindset, what I'm getting, I, you know, this morning I got this fabulous Brazilian poem sent to me on WhatsApp from a friend about the blessings of being living to my age and, and what, I mean, and this is the kind of stuff that happens pretty regularly in my life now because I set my sights to those things. Yeah. And one of the, the things that I'm capitalizing on now in a slightly different way to finish answering your question is that I understand that um, I am personally responsible for enjoying the rest of my life. I get that. It's a huge responsibility. Oh, and, and, <laughs> and I'm very busy taking... And you know what, what it turns out to be? It's very difficult for me to think of romance because the romance is with myself right now and doing things for myself in ways and allowing myself the pleasures of life completely as they show up yeah. is a full-time job. <laughs> well, Oscar Wilde said to love yourself as the beginning of a lifelong romance. So it's about bloody time, isn't it? <laughs> well, it took me a while. <laughs> so, but here I am with it. And, um, and what I also find as a result of that is that I have become more welcome to more people in my life than I ever expected. Okay. In, in places and ways that I never even thought of. So that's how it's affected my spirituality. In what way did the diagnosis... Oh, my God. Call me Afrikaans bias, that dear. Even now and then, the boor really comes through strong. <laughs> and I find it often with an awe. Like an O becomes an awe. Oh. Um, in what way did the diagnosis set you free from fear? Oh, if I can do this, I can do anything. I mean, this, this capitalized on the, and the set, the state, this, the set was uh, set for this when I got free of drugs, of drugs. Okay. If I could do this, I can do anything. And I took the, I can do this and I can do anything to, well, this is the final. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the word in Star Trek that they use? This is the frontier. Front, this is the final. <laughs> I'm in the final frontier. Cancer. It doesn't. Oh, get that's what. That's what you think. Right. Well, <laughs> for now. For now. Yeah. Right. right here, right now. This is the final frontier. We this never is, know what the next. Yeah. Thing. Remember, I don't know the '76. <laughs> I'm just knowing for now that this is the final frontier, and that in that sense, um, I already know. I can do it because I've done it mm. and and it's in my life now as part of my life I, and there is an enormous sense of personal power 
that I didn't have my whole life. I mean, it was there and it showed itself periodically, but it's pretty much there all the time these days. I know. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. And when I speak to other people who are there and we share that and it is a different state, there's different genders, there are different intellects, there are different cultures. Everybody comes to this. What I'm talking about is that there, you know, whatever I want to do, I can do whatever I want to do. It's absolutely amazing, actually. That's wonderful. Yeah. Talk about want to do. Is there anything in your life you wished you never did? You know, I've I've heard um, I've heard this question posed to so many people in in my life, and I've I've asked myself that question, and I really do believe this. It's it's almost um, it almost sounds petty, but I really believe this that every one of those things that happened in my life, good, bad, or indifferent, including the one that I have have had resentments for or that I have wish I had done differently at some period in my life. I understand that it's for me it was like bigging um, building a Lego tower without if I missed one block of that Lego tower, whatever it was, good, bad or ugly, I wouldn't be sitting here today telling you what it is to be yeah. today. And so while, you know, would I have liked to have been born uh, Prince of England? Maybe. <laughs> I don't even know if that's true, actually. I mean, being Megan at this stage. Well, what, uh, you know. I think Barry's so cute. He is. I think he's hot, too, by the way. I hope you're listening. Harry, uh, if you're listening, you, you have a following. Yeah, you definitely have a gay following. But, but the truth of the matter is I wouldn't have reconstructed anything especially the deep and painful ones yeah. that help me to be grounded in a, some kind of sense of humility. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you definitely believe that your experiences contributed to who you are today and you're happy with who you are today. So thank you for those experiences. Yeah. I mean, there's really not uh, anything less that I would have and, or more that I would have done. Yeah. The way it happened is exactly the way it needed to happen. I had such a lovely conversation with my mother the other night about my journey. And, you know, we Afrikaans, we don't talk about stuff. <laughs> Douglas is sitting in the room and he's rolling his eyes. He knows. <laughs> well, I said to her, kind of, you, you tend to make my addiction a really negative thing. But I'm incredibly grateful for it. If I look at at the gifts I got through through that journey, is I am so happy to call myself an, an addict. Sure, it's given me so much in my life. Uh -huh. And she was kind of, "Are you serious?" I said, "Yes, I am." I, said, I never thought about that. I said, "Well, do <laughs> because right. because it's really it's really changed so much for me." Uh -huh. um, yeah. What else was there? I can't think of anything else to ask you. Why okay. not? I don't know. Maybe I gave you the answer, whatever it Maybe was that you were asking. Is there anything you want us to know? Um, that I'm enjoying doing this. Um, and sometimes um, this stuff that gets stuck in my head that only gets um, airtime 
when I'm talking about it. And, um, and I'm getting that, um, having this time with you and, and answering the questions that you're asking me, um, clarify things in the dusty parts of my brain <laughs> and helps me to, um, to go forward, uh, again and again and again. So thanks for the opportunity for this. Um, anybody listening, if you're an addict or you have cancer or anything, there is this this ringing in my head thing that I and I try to tell this to patients when it's appropriate and to anyone who asks is that it's already exactly the way it needs to be. The work is to realize and to accept that. And if there's something that you don't like or isn't working, that there is only one solution to that, and that is you. Awesome. I remembered something else I wanted to ask earlier. I really like what you just said. Thank you so much. The question I wanted to ask you earlier was, with the diagnosis, was there a in, in need to, to grab science and believe that more knowledge will fix you if you understand what yes what no I'm, I'm, I'm with you no I, I i understood that whatever was available for me from science was something that i had to learn in order to be competent to be the captain of my of my wellness so i ran out essentially looking for all of the answers that took at least a half a year to get. Okay. And then little things come a little bit more. But it was the motivation to do that didn't come from science. Okay. It came from another place. And that's the 76% place. <laughs> I'm going to call this podcast a 76er. And people are going to think that you're 76 year, years old. How old are you? Right? 74. Oh, close enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 74 plus two. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I'm 73 and I'll be 74 in two months or three Ooh, months. So we now. are in the moment. We are right. so in the moment, but I'm 74 already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking 74 because I'll be that way soon. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. This was awesome. I'm so glad that I got you to do this. I'm so I'm happy so that grateful. you did. Thank you. Really. Okay, thank you so ahead. much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. I'm happy to say that now that I know more about Michael's journey, I still feel incredibly inspired. Michael entered recovery about 31 years ago and is living proof that addiction does not have to steal our lives from us. We can address addiction and live lives beyond our wildest dreams. Michael refers to as you understand it during our chat. To contextualize that statement for the non-addicts, what he is referring to, the 12 steps of recovery fellowships refer to God and then add the line as you understand it, meaning that your God and my God may not be the same God, but that in whatever way you understand God that is acceptable in these fellowships. I do have to again apologize for Tyson's mowing during the chat. He was in and out of the room the whole time and just refused to settle down. There was just too much energy in the room for him to miss out on. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook 
www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za forward slash or on Twitter at Rensburg Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank Michael for his time and for sharing his journey with Meet Me in the Field. And thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.